Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Shackman. Ever since 1960, the campaign memoir has become almost a genre unto itself. Over the years, many of these books have actually shaped our view of politics. Theodore White's Making of the President, F. Clifton White's Sweet 3505, Joe McGinnis's Selling of the President, Hunter Thompson's Fear and Loathing on the 1972 campaign, as well as Richard Ben Kramer, Timothy Krause, Rebecca Traister, and John Heilman. In each of these stories, men and even some women have competed for the presidency with the strongest of passion, with the proverbial fire in the belly. And in many cases, that ambition and their foibles have driven their personal as well as the country's narrative. As divided as we are as a nation, the one thing that seems to be unique and universally embedded within our democracy is the carnival that is the American presidential campaign. 2020 was no exception, and chronicling that campaign, or at least the Democratic side of it, is my guest, Edward Isaac Dover. He is a staff writer for The Atlantic and its lead political correspondent. He's covered Democratic politics for 15 years, beginning in his native New York City. He covered the Obama White House and traveled to 29 states during the 2020 election cycle. He's won numerous journalism awards and is a graduate of both Johns Hopkins and the University of Chicago. It is my pleasure to welcome Edward Isaac Dover here to talk about his new book, Battle for the Soul, Inside the Democrats' Campaign to Defeat Trump. Isaac, thanks so much for joining us. Jeff, thanks for having me and for that lovely introduction to be uh, included in that company. Is, uh, uh, I hope uh, something I'll, I'll, I'll try to live up to in, in readers' minds in, in this book. Well, thank you for the, for the kind words. One of the things that we've talked about so much, almost to the point of, of just absurdity over the past five, six years, is how much Trump has changed everything and the impact of Trump and the country and politics, et cetera, et cetera. As you look back at the campaign and, and look at it in the context of other campaigns, other political experiences you've covered in the past, how much was, was the Democratic side of, of this campaign and all that you covered, how much was it really impacted by Trump specifically and in a kind of unique way? Well, one of the things that I set out to do with this book was to not write another Trump book. There are a lot of reporters who uh, have spent a lot of time covering Trump, and uh, you should read their writing if you want more Trump stuff. Uh, this is a book that's about the story that was not being paid attention to really over these years, over the four years of Trump as president. It starts on election night 2016. It's got these moments that have never been reported before of Obama and Biden watching Trump win and trying to process what that meant for them and what that meant for the uh, the country and for the Democratic Party, and then traces what happened with uh, essentially two streams uh, in or uh, three streams really uh, of uh, the Democratic Party, the the elected leaders uh, who were dealing with Trump, Chuck Schumer, and Nancy Pelosi, uh, but more importantly, the the two mainstreams that, uh, uh, that I trace in the book are what happens with the activists as they start to get moving uh, in response to Trump. And then also a couple of people um, who are not household names, uh, but who are incredibly important operators within the Democratic Party. So in the early chapters, I described, uh, for example, a dinner that happens at John Podesta's house. Uh, uh, He'd been the campaign chairman for Hillary Clinton. He'd been the chief of staff to Bill Clinton in the White House. Uh, and he, he invites over fewer than a dozen people 
sitting there around uh, the table and he makes them risotto for dinner and he uh, and they talk about what they think they need to get uh, going quietly within the party to build this opposition to Trump. That kind of thing is happening at the same time that there is this spontaneous reaction to Trump, kind of repulsion from Trump among a lot of Democrats that most prominently emerges with the Women's March the day after Trump's inauguration. Uh, I was there in Washington covering the Women's March. Uh, I did not anticipate it being as big as it was. I don't think anybody anticipated it being as big there or in all the other locations uh, as what happened. Uh, and uh, one of the people I talked to the book for the book was uh, Cecile Richards, who then was at Planned Parenthood and was one of the people who was helping behind the scenes involved in, in, in getting Democrats involved with rethinking what to do. And she said to me, uh, if, if, the, if there had been an effort to plan the Women's March uh, by any organization or any group that existed already, it would have taken years and so much money. It just happened on its own. And that's all happening in response to Trump. But then the other thing that's going on in politics is that uh, it redefines how people approach campaigns and what works as a campaign and how people can break through. Uh, I spent a lot of time, for example, covering Pete Buttigieg. I started covering him when he was running at the end of 2016, right after Trump's election, to be the Democratic National Committee chair. He was the mayor of South Bend. Nobody had ever heard of him. Everybody even thought to run for, for DNC chair was a ridiculous stretch. Um, but very quickly after that, he starts getting ready to run for president. And, uh, and I had the experience. I went to Kansas with him in March of 2018. Uh, and uh, he was so unknown then, we were in Topeka, that he went to the Westboro Baptist Church, uh, which is an extremely anti-gay uh, organization, and uh, very virulently so. <clears throat> and I have pictures of him on my phone of him walking around outside of the Westboro Baptist Church as a gay man himself, taking photos of it, just sort of amazed. But of course, nobody knew who he was. The Westboro Baptist Church didn't know who he was. A year, 13, 14 months later, uh, we are in Concord, New Hampshire, uh, when he had had that CNN town hall that was his first real breakthrough moment in the presidential campaign, and he is being mobbed on the street of Concord, New Hampshire. I don't know if you've been to Concord. It's a great town. It's not a place that has a lot of people walking around on it to, to, to create mobs, but that was what was happening as Buttigieg walked in, and we sat down at this coffee shop there, and I said to him, is this happening because of Trump? Is, is, is that what, what makes you possible? And he said in his very people Buttigieg way, well, I don't think that that's really uh, all that's happening here. There's much more. Um, he talked about the case he was making, as of course he should. But you do have Trump opening up that idea of what politics is too, and also making everything seem, and not just seem, but be the kind of existential crisis that it was for America in figuring out which one do we want it to be? Do we want it to be the, the Trump way of doing things or do we want it to be uh, an alternative? There wasn't a, a, uh, an ability for anybody to say these issues didn't matter, that politics didn't matter, because it was all being forced to the forefront by Trump uh, almost every hour of every day. The other overlay to it, which you also talk about in the book, is that when we look at presidential campaigns, it's different than looking at any other campaign. It's not as fundamentally about issues or ideas, but there, but it's a gut check experience. Talk about that. 
Yeah, there, there's a person who, unfortunately, we, the, the book has a lot in it, and there was only so much we could squeeze in. <laughs> um, and we ended up adding uh, the last 50 pages of the book uh, were uh, written. Uh, my, my book was due on January 4th uh, in the, <laughs> the, the initial draft of it. And there were some things that happened that week that you may know about. And so there was an extension of the book um, and extended the, the, also uh, gave us a little bit more time to work on it. Uh, but so there were some other things that we had to drop. And one of them was uh, that uh, there was a, someone who ran for president, I won't tell you which one, and said to me that, uh, given this formulation, I think makes a lot of sense, which is that for every job in politics, uh, for every campaign, uh, voters approach it like a job application. Um, they look at the resume, whether it's city council, governor, senate, house, mayor, whatever it may be. They said, what have you done and how could you do this job? But for president, it's something different. It's always how do you feel, right? And people don't think of it as that. Now, Donald Trump is maybe the, the best example of that because he is the only person who uh, has ever been elected in American history president who didn't have a uh, previous elected office or uh, a big career in the military. Um, by contrast, of course, Joe Biden is the most experienced person who's ever been president. He's the oldest person who's ever been president and the experience is built up over that time. Uh, and you see that it wasn't people saying like, well, let's look at what Joe Biden did on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, or let's right. that's not how last year's election went. <laughs> it was about much deeper things that were going on. And there's a moment in the book that, uh, that I cite with uh, the great scholar Tom Hanks, uh, <laughs> known for his uh, astute political analysis. Insights. But in this, I think he was really right. He was doing a fundraiser for Biden that happened uh, during the week of the, that sort of strange, mostly virtual Democratic convention. Um, and it was by Zoom, obviously. And Hanks, as we all know, was, uh, got COVID and recovered. Uh, but he was uh, talking then uh, about uh, the election. He said, you know, with everything that's going on here, with the public health crisis, with the economic crisis, with the racial reckoning after George Floyd, with all these things happening that it happens to be all of it in an election year. To Hanks, he said that has to, and it makes you think like maybe there's a nod to something bigger going on or a higher power or something. Whether or not you believe Hanks is right about that, it is certainly true that George Floyd could have been killed any year. Obviously, there have been black men killed by police uh, since then and before then. It was the way that video was made and the way that video caught people's minds and what it set off. The pandemic could have hit in any year. It didn't. It hit at the beginning of a campaign year. All these things that were put in the balance, Ruth Bader Ginsburg dying six weeks before the election and putting that thing in it. All of this, there's so much that ended up being in 2020. It was an existential year for, an Amer for America. And in the end, the choice that people made, how did they feel? They felt like they wanted uh, Joe Biden to be president. They wanted Donald Trump to not be president. But I also think importantly, we're thinking about where things are now and where they're going, where the book uh, builds to, is that Biden won the election by a lot. He won by 7 million votes. But if you switch 77,000 votes in four states, Donald Trump would have won the Electoral College. And he would have been 
constitutionally the president of the United States. I think that would have been a very difficult moment for the country. I'm not sure what that would have looked like, but it's not what happened, obviously. Uh, but it does mean that this process continues. It's not like this is a story that says, like, the end at the end of the book, and then you know exactly where it's the other. But that's why I think this book, uh, it, tells, it, it tells everybody what we lived through and where, what that sets us up for. It tells Democrats how they got to the party that they've got now and what it means going forward tells Republicans what they're up against when they think about going up against this party and running against it. And, and this uh, ultimately is, at least for right now, it's the Democrats who are in control. It's the Democrats who are in power in the White House, in the House, and the Senate. We'll see how, where that leads to next year, of course. How much of where the Democrats wound up and, and all that you write about in the campaign, how much of that really stems from the fact that they were such a small bench, that Obama really neglected so much of the tending to the Democratic Party? Well, this is something that I get into in the book in, in uh, some detail. I, uh, the, the easiest way maybe to think about it is by uh, this number. There were uh, close to 1,000 seats in state legislatures, which at the beginning of the Obama presidency were held by Democrats, but by the end of the Obama presidency were held by Republicans. That is a decimation of the party. Um, it's not just, and obviously when he started as president, the House and the Senate were both Democratic. By the time he left, uh, those also were majority Republican, both of them. Uh, more governors are Republican at the end of the Obama presidency than at the beginning of the Obama presidency. It, part of what happened with Trump's election is that it was devastating to Democrats, but it also made them realize just what was how bad the situation was uh, in a way that they might uh, not have fully if, if Hillary Clinton had, had won. Uh, and it's another thing that spins the party into crisis. Uh, it's not just about electoral losses. Uh, one of the things that I get into in the book as well is Obama's approach to the Democratic National Committee, the, the official party apparatus that as the party leader over this time, it is usually his responsibility to be involved in. And, and you see Joe Biden uh, empowering the, the DNC under his presidency with Jamie Harrison is now the chair. You see Donald Trump in his presidency empowering uh, Ronald Romney McDaniel and spending a lot of time uh, making sure that the RNC was strong. And in fact, if you look at Trump's election in 2016, uh, it would not have happened probably uh, if not for all the operational stuff that the RNC had gotten together and gotten right that uh, far outpaced where the Democratic National Committee was. Uh, people around Obama refer to him as having a sort of benign neglect, is the phrase, uh, for the DNC. He didn't really care about that. He was focused on other things things that he wanted to do as president. He didn't see party politics as being of much interest or much use to him. And so he didn't invest in it in either uh, time or, or fundraising for it. And it was also left as a mess by the time that he was done being president. You talk a lot in the book, uh, obviously, about the Obama-Biden relationship. But one of the things that's so powerful, and it speaks to this whole broader idea of the kind of president we get at any particular time, is this notion of how both of them, and it goes back to this whole gut check idea, how both of them communicated, that Biden was so effective one-on-one, -on -one, and, and fortunately because of the pandemic for him, never had to really do rally after rally after rally, 
and that Obama was exactly the opposite in so many ways, that, that he wasn't as effective in terms of a pure retail politician, but could, could be intimate with a crowd of 10,000 people. Yeah, there's a moment that I uh, report on the book of uh, Biden flying around on Air Force Two, so when he's still vice president and Obama's president, and he says, sort of in, in a in a loving way, but a mystified way, he says about Obama, I've never seen somebody who's better at talking to 10,000 people than to one, right? <laughs> and, uh, and, and as I put in the book, Obama's view of Biden was essentially the reverse of that, right? Um, that Obama thought, oh, oh, Biden is great and personable and you know, have deep conversations with him and, and uh, such a great retail politician in that way. But he's not a guy who can hold a rally um, and get uh, people, get get thousands of people there, and and get them to be electrified and cheering from the way that Obama could. Uh, one of the people that I spoke to for the book is Jen Psaki, who was the communications director for Obama at the end of his time as president, and now, of course, is Biden's press secretary. I spoke to her last summer before she knew she'd get the Biden job, but she knew both of them uh, very well, and. Uh, she said to me that Obama always underestimated Biden's strengths because they were such the opposite of his own. That being said, when Obama is thinking about getting rid of Trump as president, which is a very high priority for him, obviously, uh, he looks at Biden and uh, he says at one point, uh, you know, I'm rusty when I get out there and campaign. God knows how rusty Joe is. That ends up being the title chapter uh, uh, for for one of the chapters of the book. Uh, and you know, that skepticism that Obama had of whether was Biden too old, was he uh, having too much trouble connecting with people, was he going to be able to do it, that carries through. I trace it all the way until the end of the election. Uh, and Obama's reaction is a report in the book to uh, Biden winning is, I guess it really worked. <laughs> Not like... I always knew this would be the case, but a, a sort of a surprise on a certain level. Did Biden think he could win? Uh, Biden always, once he got into the race, uh, was very confident that he could win. And that confidence stayed with him almost always, uh, even when things were, were going poorly for him. Uh, there, uh, there is a moment uh, coming forth in Iowa um, when he is about to come in fifth in New Hampshire, that I reported on the book, that uh, it, it was his campaign knew that New Hampshire would be such a disaster for them that they decided to pull him out and send him to South Carolina for a rally that night. So while all the other candidates are in New Hampshire at their parties, and, and I went to a couple of different candidates' events that night um, in New Hampshire, uh, Biden is already in South Carolina. But before he leaves New Hampshire, he makes a couple of stops, and one of them. He pulls uh, a guy named Chris Coons backstage. Coons is a senator from Delaware now, but had been, uh, he's known Biden for 30 years, very close with him. And uh, Biden wants to just talk with him and have some personal connection with somebody that he knows and trusts. And, and Coons is really struck by how distraught Biden was. And, uh, and he's trying to kind of console him, but there's not much to say because he can see that Biden, how upset the 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 way the campaign is going has made Biden and Biden says I'm the candidate I'm supposed to go out and give speeches and and be the one to go out and do all the things that the candidate does I'm not supposed to run the campaign and these guys weren't running the campaign well just looks at Coons and he says damn it now feeling it slipping through his fingers and 
and that it's there that you see the confidence eroding for Biden. When he, uh, a couple of days after that, uh, in between New Hampshire and South Carolina, it's the Nevada caucuses, and he comes in a distant second to uh, Bernie Sanders. But it's enough of a second place finish that it makes people think like, okay, maybe, maybe he could try to come back, especially because the party overall, uh, there are a lot of people who are getting very worried that Bernie Sanders is going to be the nominee and don't want him to be the nominee. Even though, of course, there were a lot of people who did want Sanders to be the nominee. And that pushback uh, ends up benefiting Biden. But as he is being told that he's going to come in second in the Nevada caucus, he has to be talked into it by his aides to see that this is actually a good thing. Um, that it, and he says, like, second, a distant second, you tell me that that's supposed to be good. Say, yes, yes, it's going to work out. We can do something with this. And, and he is skeptical. But of course, then he, he goes on to South Carolina, and that's a, a major moment for the campaign. He wins by a lot. He wins by more than anybody was expecting to, him included. And that chapter in the book uh, that goes from that Saturday South Carolina primary to uh, Tuesday, three days later, Super Tuesday, it's called 72 Hours of Changed History, because it really was. Changed everything about the Democratic race, and of course, changed who the president uh, is. If not for what happened, then Biden would not be the president. But the night before the South Carolina primary, I was at an event uh, that he was doing uh, in sort of the, the northern part of South Carolina, not too far from the North Carolina border. And uh, it's hard to I think about how it was because it was like two weeks before the pandemic hit. Uh, and so there was no social distancing at all. We were all like, very close up on each other. And he also didn't have Secret Service protection yet. And so I was able to be uh, up against uh, where he was talking to people on the rope line. And uh, I, I caught his eye at one point. And he looked at me and said, hello. And I said to him, so how does it feel to actually be winning an election? And he looked at me and he said, I don't want to jinx it just yet. You can read about what happened there in the book. <laughs> <laughs> There's a famous quote from Mike Tyson that you could have the best game plan in the world for a fight until you take the first <laughs> uppercut to the jaw. Was there ever a game plan? Was there a plan that the the Biden campaign had, or was it really winging it most of the time? Uh, well, I feel like you're not uh, doing the Mike Tyson quote uh, justice. It's everybody has a plan <laughs> until they get punched in the face. Yeah, right? That's right. Uh, <laughs> Um, uh, another great scholar of politics. Right, exactly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, he, the, the Biden campaign was not the best run campaign. Nobody would argue that. I think including most people even uh, on the Biden campaign itself. Uh, the Operationally, the best run campaigns were Elizabeth Warren's campaign, uh, Pete Buttigieg's campaign, and they uh, had different levels of benefits from it. Uh, but uh, Warren was the most, was far and away the most organized operationally, and she came nowhere near the, op the nomination in the end. And, uh, and of course, you know, Biden came in fourth in Iowa, she came in third in Iowa. Biden came in fifth in New Hampshire, she came in fourth in New Hampshire. So uh, that doesn't always do it. But there are things that I report on in the book that I think were important to get at. People understand how these campaigns really work and how there's stuff to them that's happening that you don't always see. So, for example, uh, after that famous primary debate between Harris and Biden, uh, or a lot of other candidates, but that moment where Harris attacked Biden over busing, uh, one of the things that happens there is that the Biden campaign is in a tailspin. 
Another thing that happens there is that there are a couple of aides on the Biden campaign who set out in a very deliberate way. They get Kamala Harris's own record on all sorts of issues. They do research on what the busing laws were, and they start feeding it to reporters, pushing on reporters, calling them constantly, and actually feeding them questions to ask, pushing, pushing, ask Harris this, ask him, until finally the question gets put to Harris, what her position on busing is, and she fumbles it entirely. And it makes that whole uh, rocket ship rise that she was having coming out of the primary campaign fall apart completely. And you see other moments like that happening for the Biden campaign. The other one, probably most important, is that by the time the, uh, the Hunter Biden quote-unquote laptop, we may never know whether there's an actual laptop or whether that was some hacked material or whatever it was, but some of that is real information um, that was put out there. Uh, the text messages between Joe and Hunter Biden, uh, for example, are real. Uh, and uh, But what happens when that lands and publishes in the New York Post uh, is that it is greeted immediately with suspicion by most of uh, the reporters, by most of the people in the political world, uh, in a way that undermined it right out of the gate. Is this real information? Is this all part of some Russian operation going on? And part of the way that that happened was that the Biden campaign had spent a lot of time over the the year in 2020 talking to reporters, talking to other people about what they were seeing with the Russian operations and what might be coming, sort of laying the groundwork so that when finally something came, there was it didn't just land out of nothing. And it was very different from what happened, I can tell you, from covering the 2016 campaign when there were the various hacks, including the, the WikiLeaks, Podesta emails, where that was not treated as, as being under suspicion at all. Uh, whereas the Hunter laptop situation was uh, very much suspect, and pretty much nobody ran with what was there other than the New York Post. And finally, we're just about out of time. Was, was covering this campaign any fun compared to other campaigns? There's sometimes a sense of, of carnival, as I said in the introduction, a sense of fun covering presidential campaigns. This one didn't feel that way. I mean, I, I enjoy my job. <laughs> <laughs> and so there, it, there were, it was fun to be out and seeing this play out. Um, but I think that what you're getting at is that it, it was hard for, I think, anybody who was paying attention at all over the last couple of years to not see how much was on the line for America and to not see this as just like eating hot dogs uh, at fairs or whatever. Uh, though there are some parts of the book that get into that part of the craziness of it um, and, and how it got extra crazy in this year. Uh, so I was at the Iowa State Fair, for example. I had a lot of different fried foods at the Iowa State Fair with a lot of different candidates. I'd recommend the fried peanut butter and jelly. Uh, but to go through this campaign, it was about seeing what America was going to be and what America uh, was sorting itself out on, on these super important issues on, in so many ways. And so many things that, that are, will continue to define this country that have redefined the kind of presidency that Biden has, the kind of president that he is. There is no question. You look at who Biden was when I pick up his story in 2015, uh, briefly, and, and then into 2016. And when, when I show the roots of his presidential campaign in 2018, into 2019, he is not the, the candidate 
by the end of the election than he was at the beginning. And his presidency is not at all the kind of presidency that he thought he would have. A lot of that, of course, is because of the pandemic and everything brought in by it. Uh, but in the interview that the book ends with, with Biden, that um, I did at the beginning of February with him, it was his first interview as president. He'd been president for just about two weeks. And uh, during it, he points out to me the portrait of Franklin Roosevelt that he has in the prime spot in the Oval Office. Uh, the, uh, and uh, it's over the fireplace in the Oval Office. And uh, you know, people said to me, well, wh whose portrait do you think he might have had there otherwise, if not for all of this? Uh, with the pandemic and the economic crisis and the racial crisis. And I say, I don't know, but I think, I feel like maybe it would have been like Harry Truman um, and not seeing himself as this, uh, in this position to do as much as he, he can do now potentially with all the things that are swaying, uh, that, that are swinging back and forth. Uh, uh, there, uh, when I was talking to him and I remark on this in the book, that he is aware, he knows that his presidency is a function uh, in part of Barack Obama, of being elevated to be his vice president, of having then the connection with black voters that powered him through the primary. He is aware that his presidency is, of course, a function in part of Donald Trump, of being powered through the primary by people who were, many of them turning to Biden, thinking, whatever else is going on, I think Biden has got the best chance to beat Trump. And so I'm going to go with him. And then, of course, uh, beating Trump and, and having that a lot of the reaction to Trump powering through the general election. Uh, but he is determined to not let that now be his only place in history. His presidency that was originally seen as sort of like a reset, giving time for everybody to calm down, get things back on track, is now seen as more, uh, in Biden's eyes, as a transformative presidency, as a time where he can do a lot of things that will really set the direction for what America is and what American politics is for uh, years and decades going forward. Edward Isaac DeVere, the book is Battle for the Soul, Inside the Democrats' Campaign to Defeat Trump. Isaac, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it, and I hope, uh, I hope you, everybody enjoys the book as much as you did. Thank you.